Well, good morning. Wow, 8.30 a.m. Um, it's good to be here with you. Thank you so much. Um, let me open this up in prayer. Most gracious God, we bless you for, for this morning. We bless you, Lord, for this day of life. We thank you, Father, for the gift of family, the gift of life. And Father, we pray that you will be with us today as we contemplate your mighty works in our lives and in this world. May your name be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Hung Lee. I have the privilege of uh, serving as a university registrar for Pepperdine. Uh, I, I came here as a student back in 1983, graduated in 87, uh, moved away to New York, uh, married my college sweetheart, Corrine, this year, um, and then came back here in 1990 and have been here ever since. Uh, it is a joy and a privilege to be uh, in a place like this, to get to share in the uh, life-transforming experiences of our students. And we, you honor us by, by coming here, so, so thank you. Thank you for, for affirming uh, that what we do is good and right. And, uh, and we pray that this place continues to glorify God. My prayer for every student who comes here, and I pray this constantly, is that this place becomes holy ground for them. You see, when uh, Moses met God at the burning bush, uh, God said, Moses, take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. See, that ground, those grounds that, on which Moses stood was just normal ground. It was made holy when he met God there. And so that's our prayer, that's my prayer, is that each and every one of our students here experiences God in such a powerful way that this becomes holy ground for them. So thank you. Thank you for sharing with us in that mission. Well, today I want to talk with you about uh, a mission that is possible. And what is that mission? In uh, 2012, our family went to uh, Kenya for the very first time. And to be honest, we, um, when, when I talked to our youth minister, Dusty Breeding at the time, uh, he's still our youth minister, when, when I talked with him, um, when he first arrived, I, uh, I knew that he had been in Africa. To me, Africa was a place, and it was an exotic, faraway place, place I'd never been. And so I, I said to him off the cuff one day, I said, you know, Dusty, I'd love for you to take our kids to Africa one day. Be careful what you say to Dusty because he takes you at your word. Mm -hmm. A few months later, he said, yeah, you know, I would love to take our youth group to Kenya. And to be honest, I didn't know where Kenya was. Um, I said, great. And so they began the process, make a long story short, our whole family ended up going. Um, that was not our original plan. We, uh, it was only for uh, students in high school, and we had kids younger than high school. But somehow God opened the doors, and our whole family went. And during the preparation process, it was really difficult for me to tell people what we were doing in Kenya, or what kind of trip it was. So, technically, it was a mission trip, uh, and that's why I referred to it as, at first, uh, because that's what youth groups do, right? They go on mission trips. And, um, but then the more I found out about Kenya, 
And the more I found out about the ministry with which we were working, which was made in the streets, and I'll t talk more about that in a little bit, um, I thought it doesn't, didn't jive with my concept of a mission trip. Because <coughs> in my mind, up to that point, a mission trip meant you go to convert people. That's, that's your mission. But we were going to work with a Christian organization with kids who are already Christians. So what are we converting them to? And I thought, okay, we can call it a service trip, but I felt ill-equipped to serve. Well, what are we serving? What am I bringing to the table? And there were things that we're planning, and I thought, but I thought, you know what, God revealed to us, and I prayed all along, God revealed to us what you would want us to do. When we got there, two days into the trip, I realized what it was. God revealed to us what we, why we were there for. John 10.10 10 came into my mind as we sat with, as we danced with, as we played with, as we ate with these beautiful children and amazing staff there. You see, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. We ever wonder why Jesus came, he told us. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. I realized we were on a mission trip. We were there to participate in life, to make life more abundantly. Not just for those whom we were there to be with, but also for ourselves. Father Gregory Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries, just spoke at Seaver's graduation um, last, this last Saturday. Uh, and he said, we don't go to the margins to make those at the margins better. We go there so that they would make us better. And that's exactly why we're there, to participate in the mission of Jesus to make us all better, to live out this abundant life call. And it is a call that can be difficult at times. If we look at the news, we look at our, our news feeds, it's easy to be discouraged. There's so much darkness in the world, and now it's more ever-present. We were exposed to so much more of it because Information is more readily available. And so often, we allow the, the darkness to seep into our souls because it's right there in front of us. I've taken to stop watching the news before I go to bed. In fact, I've taken to stop watching the news, period. Um, but that's just one way to deal with it. Avoidance is not always the most effective way. I believe that living by faith is the way that Jesus calls us to live. Because God is and God works. And often, in times of darkness, we, we, see, we don't see him. We don't hear him. He seems utterly silent. And we ask for hope. It seems very empty. But God still is, and he still works, despite what we might think, despite 
what we might not hear. But you see, these are easy words to write and easy words to read. That God works even at times when he seems to be utterly silent, when the darkness is overwhelming, when hope is merely an empty word, God still is, God still works. But it's much harder to live. Today, I'm going to share with you some stories. And so it's a time of storytelling. Um, I love telling stories. And those who know me know that I love telling stories. And so we'll engage in a time of storytelling. Um, and, but before I do that, I must confess that despite all the things that have happened, all the, all the things that, um, that God has blessed me with, I still continually fail. And recently, I discovered, rediscovered, the nemesis to my living this out, the nemesis to my walking in faith. I have to confess, I often walk in fear. I had just returned from um, a trip to Argentina where we took our students to a northern um, village in, uh, of Argentina, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But there, God revealed to me my nemesis to walk in faith. And that nemesis is my own timing. Like two of our sons are here, and they can tell you that I, am, I can be a control freak. Uh, what I mean by that is, as I like to plan things out, and I like to have things happen a certain way. Uh, Dr. Nottiger, with whom I get to work, um, when we go to Kenya, he knows this about me, right? And it works, right? It works many times. Um, but when things don't happen on time, I find myself worrying. My uh, English teacher in uh, high school, Mrs. Bennett, whom I love dearly, she's like my second mom, she named me the worry wart uh, because I worry about everything. And I, sometimes I worry because I'm not worried enough. Um, so, uh, so that's, so that I realized that my worry comes from things not happening in my timeline. And so I'm hoping that today, through our, our stories, you will see how God works not always on our timeline. This week we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. When Jesus left, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that the Spirit does for us is that he provides us with protection. He takes care of us when we can't take care of ourselves, and that's most of the time. He guides us, and he provides us with security. This is one of my most favorite pictures. This represents to me so much goodness. This is an American GI, a Vietnam veteran, a soldier who served this country and who served my country, the country of Vietnam. I grew up with soldiers all around me, and they were our heroes. The American soldiers were there to protect us, and I loved that. I felt so safe. I felt so very safe when they were there. I remember at the end of the day, they would come home from work, and, and us kids would run out and greet them, and, and more than once, 
you know, one of them would pick me up and put me on his shoulders, and they were so much bigger than everyone else, and they were the kind, kindest people. And I knew they were there to protect us. And it wasn't until much later when I came to the States that I understood even greater, to the greater extent, the price of their protection. That many of them sacrificed their youth, their childhood, and their actual lives. And it wasn't until I came back here, when I came to the United States, I realized that that sacrifice was not necessarily celebrated in their own country. And that broke my heart. Because you see, this was the incarnation of God's spirit because God protects us just as these soldiers protected us in our country. They fought for a people who couldn't fight for themselves. And for that, I am deeply indebted. And our family celebrates their American soldiers. And this soldier is not just any soldier. This soldier is one of Pepperdine's very finest. He came back to become one of the most winning coach, maybe the most winning coach of Pepperdine, having won at least, a, I won't say the number, but many national championships. He, is, he was an Olympic coach. He is a national hero. He is my hero. And the beauty of this man is that he builds young men, not just good players, because they are, they're championship players, they're Olympians, but he builds them, he builds their character. And from that um, incredible foundation of character, he they, they play. Out of that character, they play. Winning is awesome. I love it when we win. But more importantly, I love our players because of the incredible human beings they are. And so, and he's here today. So Marv, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And there were dark times, but after that darkness, Marv lived a faithful life and continues to live a faithful life. And God is glorified in and through him. Another soldier that means the world to me is, is my dad, who just passed away a little over a year ago. He's, he was, is still my hero. When, the, when Saigon fell, um, he was on the, the south side, the, the, the South Vietnamese army side. And he was arrested, picked up off the street one day, um, and was imprisoned in a re-education camp. Most people who are imprisoned in those camps are there for about a year. But my dad was there for six years. And the reason he was in prison for so long was that he refused to join the Communist Party. Because that's part of the, the, the education, right? To, to educate you on your, the, the wrong ways and educate you to the right way. 
and he refused to join the Communist Party. It was not just his pride, it was his faith. Because he knew by joining the Communist Party, he would have to denounce his faith. And he refused to do that. It affected everything about him. He was an incredible, incredibly strong, robust man. And that camp wore him down physically. In fact, when he died, the day that he died, I found out that he had lung disease. We didn't know that. We didn't know that for, until the day he died. They had lung disease. And it was from his time in the camp. Mm. You see, he saw darkness, incredible darkness. He worked to the point where he literally lost all his fingerprints. When he became, uh, when he tried to become um, a US citizen, it took him a year longer because he didn't have fingerprints. Um, and, and he knew how difficult it was, but he remained faithful. He didn't know when he was going to get out, but he remained faithful. He said, I will not, will not denounce the name of Jesus. Amen. He kept it. So during the time, so I, I came to the United States in 1975 without my family. And so for years, I worked, my goal in life was to bring my family over. In 1989, I met with a, um, a congressman in New York and told him my story. And I asked him, what would it take to bring my family to the United States? He looked at me and he said, Hung, one of two things need to happen for your family to come to the States, an act of Congress or a miracle of God. In other words, you're hopeless. That, and I walked away dejected. Less than three months later, I received a packet from this congressman, and in it was a bill that was, had passed the House and was going through the Senate that would allow the United States to negotiate with Vietnam to, to bring prisoners, or former prisoners of re-education uh, re camps who had been detained at least five years and their family to come to the United States. You see, it was an act of Congress and a miracle of God. Mm. Often, we don't get to see the fruit of our faith. In our family's case, God blessed us with the joy and the privilege of seeing the fruit of his sacrifice. He's never talked with me about the details of what's in the camp. Once in a while, things will, will uh, seep out. But he never allowed that to impact his life in a dark way because he knew his God was real, is real. And so his sacrifice and his faithfulness brought them to the United States in 1991. Mm -hmm. This one of my most favorite pictures of my mom and dad. I love the smiles. I love the, the joy that, that they have. But that joy was not always present. 
my mom, during those dark years when my dad was not present, worked her fingers to the bone, and as a single mom in a very patriarchal society, to care for her family. She kept our family together, and she never lost hope because she knew, she knew that God does work. One of the darkest periods of my life was in the sophomore year of my high school. I had just moved to, a, um, to my last foster family. <clears throat> a few months later, a few months after I moved there, I received word that my sister um, had died while she was on her escape from Vietnam. She was on a boat um, and the pirates uh, on, on the high seas, uh, boarded the boat and took everything and uh, raped and killed a number of people. Um, she survived, but then they were without water for several days and she was in extreme pain uh, from, from thirst. And so she begged for water and uh, a kind person uh, gave her water. What she didn't know was that the water had come from the engine of the boat, and what the person didn't know was that the, the water is tainted with acid. And the acid ate through her stomach and, and her, her organs, and she died. I still remember that day. I still remember the pain that I felt. It was, I remember just weeping and sobbing. I remember every cell in my body ached. and, and I remember even, I, I touched my hair and it hurt. And I cried all night long and, and daylight came. And then the tears were dry. Hmm. And I became numb. This pain turned into this numbness. And the numbness turned to anger. I became really angry with everything and everybody. I was angry with the, with the, um, the atrocious, communist government of Vietnam that drove my sister, a beautiful, brilliant young woman whose bright future was ahead of her. You know, she was dating the, the country's top men's volleyball player uh, she, who would do anything for her. She was a model. She was uh, attending university. She, was, she had it all, but she could not live under that regime. So I was angry at the government. I was angry with my parents for letting her go. I was angry with my sister for dying. I was angry with me because somehow by me leaving one foster family to go to another, the last letter she wrote to me was, um, I will come and I will take care of you. But the deepest anger I felt was for this God whom I have put all my trust, all my faith. During the year in which, during which I lived with my cousin when he would beat me to a pulp, the thing that kept me going was that I knew God would remain faithful. And I had this weird thing, and maybe it's a, if there's a psychologist in the room, you, you can probably have a, a word for this. Maybe it was a defense mechanism that I, I felt like somehow this pain would turn into some kind of a payoff. I know, it's, it's weird, but that's how I survived. And I thought, God, 
you were supposed to take care of her. How can you be good when this kind of thing happens? And so I went to this great dark place, and I guess now I look back, perhaps it was a form of, of depression. For several, several months, I just locked myself away from people. I went to school, never did talk to anybody. I was a completely different person. A friend of mine, or my best friend at the time, Craig, came to me one day and asked me what, what was happening. And I tried to explain to him that, you know, I mean, it's not feeling well. And then we got into the topic of my sister's death. And I said, you know, I guess I'm still mourning for death. And he said, no, I, don't, I think there's something more. I, I know that's painful, but I, I have a feeling there's something more. And I don't know what made me say this, but I literally said out loud, I said, God is dead. Hmm. I think that's what, that's what I'm, I'm dealing with, that God is dead. And then it's just a torrent of emotion poured out, and I, and I just spewed anger. And I talked about the unfairness and the absence and the darkness of this supposed God. And Craig looked at me, an atheist, he looks at me in the eyes and he said, Hum, if you believe in God, which I believe you still do, you must believe that he works on his timeline and not on yours. An atheist said this to me. And after Craig left, I went to my room, and for the first time in months, I cried. Tears came back, and I wept bitter tears. And I remember that night saying out loud, God, I don't know what to do with you. I am so angry. I didn't say angry, I used another word. <laughs> but I won't say it because it's being, this is being recorded. <laughs> but I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do anymore. But I'm tired of running from you. I just know I need to be in your presence. It was a life transformation moment. So the first time in my life, I actually talked to God. And God became so big in my life that he was able to withstand my anger. He's so big in my life that I could be honest with him. And he was so big in my life that he could still wrap his arms around a hurting son and wept with me. God works. In the darkness, when he was so silent, he worked. He worked by not letting go of me. He worked by allowing me to wallow in my pain to the point where I could cry out and say, I need you. Because so often, I operate on this notion that God is there if I need him. And when, he, when I need him, I need him to do things my way on my time. And what I learned that night was that God worked on his timeline. But he works because he loves me. And that he never let go of me. 
Beautiful. In 2012, we came to Kenya. This is a group of our, this is a picture of our first group who was there. Um, we had no idea what God was about to do. We came to a place of extreme poverty, a place so full of darkness. That picture on the top left is Mathari Valley. I think it's the second largest slum in Kenya. Um, and those kids on that pile of garbage, that is their home, that's their source of food. What we can't tell from these pictures is the stench. I remember walking through Eastleigh for the very first time, and the stench was overwhelming. I, I can't, it's hard for me to even describe it. The best way for me to explain it is they were paving the road. And I remember walking next to Jody Sturgeon, and uh, I said, is it crazy that the tar in Kenya doesn't smell? Because you know what, how badly tar smells. I could smell the tar. I thought, they must, we should get some of this for the States. Because, it, and Joey said, it's not that tar doesn't smell. It's the stench of the garbage that overwhelms the smell of the tar. That's how bad it was. And yet, this is the home for these kids. Hundreds and thousands of kids live on the streets. They live on garbage because garbage, rotting garbage produces methane, which is a warm gas, so it keeps them warm. It's a source of food because they scavenge to, uh, for things to eat. They scavenge for, for metals and glass and things to sell. Um, most of the kids um, are hooked on some kind of street drug, usually it's glue. Um, and the reason they're hooked on it is not for recreational purposes, is because they're in so much pain. I'm not sure if you've ever been so hungry that you're in pain. You know, often, you know, our boys would say, I'm starving, or I would say, oh, I'm starving. I try really hard not to say that word anymore because we have no idea what starving is. Because it's not just not having food, it's not having a hope, any hope of getting food that exacerbates the pain. These kids, have been rejected by their families, many of whom have been beaten. They, they come from broken homes where or, or, uh, the father either left or died and so the mother can't take care of them anymore. Or that the mother remarries and the new father says, you know what, I don't want to take care of another man's son. Whatever it is, these kids live here not because of what they did, is because of where they were born. And so there is extreme darkness. People are afraid of them. They're treated like criminals. All they want is a piece of bread. And yet they're chased away. They live in a place where there's no hope. But you know what? There is hope. And that hope comes in the form of incredible people at Made in the Streets. We have two of them here today with us. We have Irene and Monica. They are...
they are the same. Monica is uh, the director of the Eastleigh Center, the, the inner city um, center. And Irene is one of the, uh, your assistant director now for the all of MITS in Kamulu. And they go through the streets, they minister to these kids, they treat them like human beings. They are, they, they are Christ to this hurting world. They bring these kids in to me in the streets. And the children are given an education. They're given a home. They're, they're given three meals a day. And then they're given vocational training. So when they leave, they're literate and they're able to, to get work. In this dark, dark place, they, they bring hope. And life is made more abundant because they live out the mission of Jesus. But you see, there's a cost to living out the incarnation of Jesus. Your heart gets broken. <clears throat> Think about what Jesus did. How many times was his heart broken when he was here on earth? And how many times is God's heart broken today? This is Brian. <coughs> we met him one year at a, um, we, we bring our, we, we bring Pep9 students and we have, you know, uh, Donna and, and Lon Kim uh, teach uh, biology and nutrition and, and we bring our students to, uh, to Kenya to do research and, and to serve and, um, and we had this science camp and Brian was there and we met him and, and we fell in love with him. And as we were leaving, I prayed over him and I said, Brian, my prayer is that you will come to me in the streets. I pray that God would bring you there. And he looked at me with glazed eyes and he just nodded. In less than a year, he came. He came and I was free. And we prayed so long and hard for this. And he came and he became a student and he was incredible. I, I cried uh, when I heard the news. A few months later, I cried again because he had run away. Um, the following summer, we, um, we went back and uh, our son Zach had arrived first and, and Zach said, we, we found Brian and he wants to see you. So we went back to Paradise Lost to, to do this camp. And we get there, and I'm looking for Brian. And, and there were several kids there who said, <clears throat> Brian's looking for you, but he's afraid to see you. So we um, sat lunch. I'm looking and looking, and I see this kid standing way far out. And he's standing there, and I can see he's staring at me. He's wearing his bright yellow shirt. I thought, so I waved him over, and he slowly walked over, and I ran to him, and we met, and oh, it was the sweetest reunion. I, and and I, I just, he barely spoke English, I spoke no Swahili, but he knew <coughs> that I loved him. And I kept saying over and over again, Naku Benda, Naku Benda. 
Center. And I, and I talked with one of, one of the, the people there, one of our staff people, and I said, what can we do? Because he can't come back to admit, he'll run away. And so what can we do? And so we made arrangements for Brian to go to another school. And he was there for another six months. He ran away again. Not a day goes by without me thinking of him. Yeah. And you know what, you guys? I didn't need this. My life was full. <coughs> I didn't need this. And yet, we tell our students, we tell everyone who goes to Main the streets, if you go, prepare to have your heart broken. Don't go just for fun. And you could. You could go and just walk away. But if you allow God to work, your heart will be broken. And Jesus must have known that when he created us from the very beginning. He knew from the very beginning his heart would be broken. He did it anyway. I thank him for that. Because if he had said, you know what, not worth it, we won't be here. And so, so thankful for that. This is one of my most favorite pictures. That's Beatrice. This is the first day she came to Main Streets. We met her when uh, we were working in Eastleigh, and I just prayed that she could come. Uh, on our last night, right before the feast, they brought Jesus, or Beatrice. The following year, we came back, and she had changed her name to Beatrice. I think she's back to Beatrice now, I think. We still call her Beatrice. And she's looking at this army of people who were cheering <coughs> as she walked on. <laughs> It's the most incredible thing. Mises just graduated, and she's now working for Java House, which is the Starbucks of Africa. <laughs> was founded by a Pepperdine alum, oh. a classmate of mine. Uh, gradu we graduated one semester apart, Kevin Ashley. When, when I found out it was Kevin who owned um, Java House, we connected, and through the miracle of God, he came to love Main Streets. And this year, Java House hired all 10 graduates of MIT's catering program. Mm -hmm. Praise God for this, and the thesis is doing really, really well. We continue to pray because it is a continual struggle, especially for girls. It's much harder to rescue girls than boys because girls belong to somebody. They're used as sex slaves. They're, they, it costs somebody something when the girls are rescued. And so pray, pray that we can continue to rescue these beautiful children. You see, the hands that rummage through garbage are the hands that made these beautiful cakes now. The hands that serve the, the, the kings and queens of lands that come to um, uh, Kenya, the hands that made that chicken cacciatore that's actually on the menu for Java House. And when we arrived this last year, <coughs> the Kenyan students made pizzas and hosted a pizza party for us. Um, it's an incredible thing to see. So all those kids you see there are now fully employed at one of the top restaurants in Kenya and in all of Africa. 
one of my most favorite stories is of this little boy named Victor. That's the first time I met Victor. The first trip I went, my, my sons will tell you, I took over 10,000 pictures. I couldn't help it. I just, I, I wanted to remember everything. My most favorite picture is this picture. This was at the Children's Center. They, everyone was playing. I looked over and Victor is in the corner by himself writing. And I, I don't, you probably can't read this. After he got up, I went over and looked at what he was writing, and he wrote, I am Victor. I love Jesus. That's all I need to know of it. That is how I want to live. I fell in love with Victor immediately. And that June, we left. And he, I couldn't get him out of my mind. Um, in November, I came back. I took some of our graduate students. And as I was talking with Charles Darling Colston, the founder of Summit Streets, they kept talking about Victor and referring to his condition. And I finally said, what condition? And they said, well, you can't smell him? I said, I'm in Kamulu. No, I can't smell him. Uh, what? So they explained to me that he had this uh, he was born with a con congenital birth defect where he cannot urinate. And so when he was a baby, he was dying and the, uh, the doctor cut two stomas on his um, lower abdomen and urine would seep out. And that's how he was able to live. And so he was six years old and he was getting too big for the diapers. And so he was always wet. And Victor is a brilliant kid. I mean, he was fluent in both English and Swahili. He could write and read English. And Charles said, and I think he's had the end of his ropes for education because he was too old for the children's center and schools would not take him. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not acceptable. That's, that's. And I thought, what, what would happen? We can't, we have to do something. And so instead of praying, I got an email. I thought, you know what? We know people who know people who can do something. And so I got in touch with a, um, a friend who worked with Mending Kids. And after I emailed her, I thought, you know, Hung Stop, pray, pray, pray. Ask God to guide this process and put Victor in his care. And I realized that I'm late to the game because I'm certain that his family has been praying for him all his life. Well, fast forward the following year, we came back with great news. Mending kids had agreed to provide surgery for him, and so we, uh, I was there to take Victor. And all we needed to do was get his visa. We, had, we got him a, a, an appointment with the uh, U.S. Embassy, and I was certain that he would get his visa. I went there, and guess what? The embassy said, mm-mm, can't go. Are you kidding? We have letters from many kids, the doctors, the all sorts of people, and no, he can't go. Well, that these pictures here was taken the morning 
on the last day for us to be in Kenya that year. And I was inconsolable. I had to go to tell Nancy and Victor that Victor was not coming. He was packed, he was all set, and I had to tell them that he was not coming. It was heartbreaking. I, I prayed for the words, I prayed for the words to say, and no words would come. The only words that came that morning was from Nancy. She said, Hung, I've been praying all of Victor's life, and yesterday, as I was reading the Bible, the passage, a passage came to me. It was a story of when Jesus was in a village, and there was a paralyzed man who couldn't get to Jesus. His friends carried him there, and they knew that if they can get him in front of Jesus, he would be healed. He said, she said, Victor is that man on the paralyzed man. And she said, all his life, we've tried to get him, and he, we could never get him to the right place at the right time. And she said, I believe that you and your friends, your family, are those friends. I said, I, I know you will find a way. I know you will break through the roof and you will place him before Jesus and Jesus will heal him. Of course I wept. Here I was going there to try and minister to this mom and she was ministering to me. We left ejected, but fast forward. Victor was approved, um, was it just a week later? For his visa, he came, and Mendon Kids, and Gene Simmons, and Tom Shadyak, and all these other people came together and provided funding for him to have surgery. And when people asked Nancy, aren't you amazed? Aren't you amazed? In other words, aren't you surprised at what God did? And Nancy's answer is, I'm not amazed. I'm thankful. I knew God would do it. I was never a doubt in my mind that God could heal him. I'm thankful for that. Nancy is a woman who lives in faith because she allows God to work on his timeline, not on hers. And today, Victor is a thriving young man doing incredibly well. Here he stands with Nancy and Shiko, his sister, and Nefat's brother story. This is Omar. They're in Marv's army hat. We, Omar is a pastor in Argentina. He founded this place called Agilam, this community, to care for families of those who struggle with addiction. I believe it's 22 years ago that he started this community, right Ben? Ben was just there and he spent many weekends in this beautiful community, in this dark world where it seems so hopeless for, for these usually men who struggle with addiction, their families are falling apart. Omar refuses to let the darkness overcome the world. So he brings light, he creates this beautiful community, and today there are hundreds of families who have been served, been helped, and uh, and Pepperdine gets to be a partner with, with this incredible community. 
It's a beautiful place. Every tree you see there has been planted from seeds. They started with practically, well, not just practically, an empty lot in one of the poorest areas right outside of Buenos Aires. And today it's a thriving, loving community. And I praise God for Omar. And I praise God for the, the men and women who continue to work there, who continue to serve and to shed light into a very dark world. They refuse to give up. They refuse to let darkness overcome. El Negrito is a village in northern Argentina. It is so remote, it, it takes 13 hours to get to the capital city and then three hours to get to the village. And from the main dirt road, you don't have, have to travel another 17 kilometers on a sandy, dirt, muddy road to get to this village. The water is tainted, or, or uh, the, the water is, uh, contains arsenic naturally occurring, so, so the people can't drink it. The, um, it. It's also salty, so even though uh, we can figure out how to remove arsenic from the water, it's too expensive to, uh, to, um, to, re to remove the salt. Four years ago, I had the honor and the privilege of beginning work with our students and our staff in Buenos Aires to go to this village and to work with engineers without borders to solve this problem. These people were dying and we couldn't let that happen. And so the engineers came up with this idea. We can't use the water. I came in thinking, hey, we can get World Vision involved in this. We can dig the wells, right? And they found out by the arsenic. Not going to happen. So we came up with this idea to build cisterns to collect rainwaters during rainy season so they can use it throughout the year. And so, so we, not just in the other region, but throughout the region. And so there's a simple idea, but a powerful idea, an effective idea. And then we, uh, one of Ben's friends from school came up with this incredible um, nonprofit that provides water filters throughout the world. And it was, it's free. We just have to de deliver them. And so we connected with Cole Kawana. And we bring water filters because the water in cisterns throughout the year gets stagnant and contains many bacteria. And so we bring these water filters, same water filters we bring to Kenya. And, and so now these people have a way, a source of clean water. And we continue to work with them. And, uh, but you see, that's what we do for them. But what, that's so small in comparison to the incredible joy that they provide for us. We don't go there to make them better. We go there because we need to. We bring our students there because they make us better. And I pray for the continued opportunities to continue to serve with them. This last year, we were just there for Easter, and Corrine uh, uh, brought uh, things to, to teach them uh, about the Easter story. Uh, we use, uh, we, Corrine, and our students use the resurrection eggs to tell the story of the resurrection, and they had an Easter egg hunt and all those things. But more importantly, 
with your lives. We are the only non-El Negrito community that comes into that village. The world has been made smaller. They have brought light into our world and we to theirs. And it's all in the name of Jesus because Beautiful. God is and God works. Beautiful. Our lives have been changed. Our family is different. Not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done and continues to do. Because he is and he works. We can choose to let the darkness overcome us, or we can choose to live out the mission of Jesus and bring light into this world. And to live out the mission that Jesus has called us to live. He doesn't call us to remain in our bubble. He's called us to live out his mission. And wherever we are, whether it's in Malibu or in Eugene, Oregon, or in Paris, France, in El Negrito, Argentina, on the streets of Camulu, God is and God works. And he calls us into that mission. The mission of Jesus doesn't, didn't end when he ascended into heaven. It was only beginning. And I praise God for the privilege of sharing in that mission. Today's a national day of prayer. As we pray, I ask that you pray for this little lad. His name is Isaac. We met him last summer when we were at Paradise Lost. We fell in love with him, and we've been praying for him that God will bring him to Main the Streets. He's too young, and Monica informed me that they've been working with him, and they, they tried to put him in another school for younger kids, and he didn't like that, so he ran away, and he ran back to Maiden Streets programs. And so we pray that by the time we get there next summer, that Isaac will be a part of that. And, and, and so think of him, pray for him, and pray that God will continue to use us for his work. Thank you for being here this morning. May God be glorified.